0: That's a recording. Um, struck ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And I just really want to, today I'm super excited for those of you listeners. And um, today I'm going to be talking to Peter Dillon and um, I really just want to just say what a privilege it is to know Peter. Um, he's a fellow Islander and except I come from the Fijian Islands and he's from the other end of the world. And... Um, He's Irish, of course, and you'll know that straight away. But uh, one of the things that I really just want to say before we start talking is um, over the years, uh, you meet certain people who will bring experiences onto a film set and um, into the stunt department whose experience has been tampered with uh, real life experiences. And um, when when I first met Peter, he was, uh, I, I felt he was a bit of an outsider and um, an outsider in the business, and um, but as I got to know him, I think that that outside quality that he had was actually one of his greatest strengths. And um, one thing I really noted earlier that he had this ability to share what he knew in a way that made people um, um, want to know more and were engaged with him. And um, when I looked into his background, you know, he'd um, Peter's got a he's done. Um, <clears throat> He has, has had some experience in public relations, um, he's done a diploma in education, he's worked as a high school teacher teaching um, um, German and geography, he studied Chinese martial arts and um, I want Peter to elaborate on that later because it seems like that was a very a big influence on his um, on his life and the way he approached things. In um, travel when I met him he was a, he was a well-traveled guy and um, and that felt uh, like it was um, uh, a key part to his makeup as his experience uh, cross-culturally. Um, and then you, know, you go into the practical stuff, a great archer and um, yes, he's actually beaten me a few times on the target board. Um, he arrived in New Zealand 1999 and um, I think we worked together on his very first job, but he can correct me on that. But it seemed like a long time ago, it might've been my first one too and um he he joined the stunt guild of new zealand he, let, he later went back to ireland and um was one of the key people that got uh, the irish stunt guild up and running as well and um um i'm really interested to the today as i talk to peter i really want just want to find out what he's doing now and um and um and what next and um so peter give me it's good to see you <laughs>
1: um yeah great to see great to see you Uh, and coming in there with a bit of the irish good on you um in answer to your first question there of what am i doing now i'm having my first coffee of the day uh and it's a gorgeous day too the sun is shining uh, and in ireland that's always a treasure so it's a good start to what looks like a good day
0: that's awesome hey peter you know like um um i turned 50 uh this year and um I was working overseas in China and um, and I felt a tug saying, you know, if you don't get a chance to share some of the things you know, uh, find a platform for it, you will regret it. And, um, and I guess this has been part of my journey as, as a stunt coordinator to, to do this podcast, to share some of the things that I've learned, but more importantly, the, most of my learning has come from, um, from working with people who, um, who are very driven similarly, not just in making films, but about things that they value and um, you know, similar life values. And, I, and, and you're very much up there in terms of my list when I just talk to think about who are the first 25 people I wanna to talk to, it was like Peter Dillon. That's right there. And, um, and before we do that, I just, before, uh, I just want to just get the audience to, to, to know you. Can you just tell us a little bit about you and where it all started for you and, um, and how we came to To maybe have met and perhaps on a project that's probably significant for both our lives in so many ways, you know? Um, yeah, go on, go on then you can talk now. (laughs) For sure. Uh,
1: (laughs) It is your podcast. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think Irish people like telling stories. Um, and I think a lot of the great stories involve journeys. Um, from kind of Homer's odyssey onwards Um, and I've always loved the notion of odyssey because it isn't about just traveling from A to B it's about the unexpected adventures um, that happen along the way Um, and some of those adventures can initially seem a bit like pitfalls or traps or you know you know things that are, are there to kind of trip you up but all of them, no matter what form they take, depending on how you approach them, uh, become learning experiences, I think. Um, And for me, that's the value of the journey. Um, There's a great quote I've always loved from Goethe, who's uh, that famous German author. Um, And it's in English, it's, whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it, because beginning has power in it. Um, And I've always loved that notion that beginning we all know this from from starting again and again and again within our own lives that the energy required to start something is quite a powerful type of energy and sometimes we feel like that's running out maybe but it's always there and I think you know if you feel the urge like you've just described there with the podcast to start something then start it it may not go the way you thought it was going to go but it will go somewhere Um, and it's the somewhere and the journey to that somewhere that I think that provides the the life adventure, you know. So with that as a preamble, um, yeah, I worked in, I did a degree in university and then worked for a year in public relations, um, learned a lot from it, particularly to do with writing and communication, I guess. Um, But it wasn't for me, it wasn't my thing at all. Uh, And so I reapplied for college, went back and did a higher diploma in education to become a school teacher. Um, And I think that also ties in with what you're saying there. Regardless of, of of the format or the venue, I've always loved the notion of sharing something that I that's that's become important to me with someone else, you know, um that seems interested in it as well. I think the ability to kind of teach and is about about connection and the ability to connect. Um and, and share something with some with someone else, whether it's a group or an individual, you know. So the idea of teaching had always appealed. Um Plus, the summer holidays always appealed as well, because in Ireland, June, July and August, they say they're the three best reasons for being a teacher. Um, But they're they're the holidays that we have in the summer, plus the others during the year. So I began traveling at least, I would go, be gone on the 1st of June and back at the end of August. Um, So basically one year and four, I was was abroad. And because of the martial arts that I was doing, my first choice of destination was always uh, Asia, um, Southeast Asia, and in particular, Malaysia, actually. So, my journey with martial arts began in university with a man called Sung Liu Cheng, who was Chinese Malaysian, and he was studying over here. And I had done some martial arts before, and I knew I was looking for something, but didn't know what specifically. Really, I couldn't put my finger on it. Um, as a kid, I was always into the great mythologies, you know, the Irish mythologies of Fionn McCool and Cú Chulainn. Um, mm-hmm the kind of the warrior code, the warrior cast. And I always love this sort of stuff, the Knights of the Round Table, and um, the stories of the Shaolin monks, you know. So later on, as a kind of a person starting on that journey, I, like I said, I knew I was looking for something, but didn't know what. Um, but when I met Cheng, um, for him teaching the Shaolin system, which was hood Shaolin, it wasn't his a sport or a pastime. It was part of his history And his culture and his heritage and his tradition and he would only teach it in that holistic context and if you weren't interested in that then he wasn't wasn't interested in you Um, and actually the first time I asked him to teach me he said no Um, and as an Irish teenage kid that was like what do you mean no Um, but that's quite a Chinese thing as well just to see if you're serious and uh, get you to come back three times uh, which I did and so he was my first teacher of Shaolin And with him and through him, I began to realize that there are doors through which you can go that I didn't even know existed. You know, ways of seeing the world, ways of seeing how we can interact and communicate. And his way of teaching and the Chinese way of teaching was quite different as well. I think the West has tended to move in a very spoon-fed kind of a way, um, focusing too much on individual items and less about the connectivity of information. So, um, But with the Chinese form of teaching, it's there's no spoon feeding, there's crumb dropping. And it's up to you to follow the crumbs and pick them up, eat them, digest them, and then move on, you know? Um, so in the beginning, to be honest, it was quite a slow process, but I knew that this was now what I was looking for. And so when I was 20 for the first time, I went out to Malaysia uh, to, to visit him when he was back there and met his master. And that experience with that master and that school really blew my mind. Um, and in a sense provided a frustration because i knew i had to go back to ireland and i'd now seen what these people could do and i wanted that um but cheng had now moved back to malaysia to support his family and so we were kind of left on our own kind of kung fu orphans back in ireland but then as these things often do um one of our students and a good friend of mine came across a man in london called han kim sen who was a disciple student of a very famous martial artist called Chi uh, Kim Tong, and Han took us on as his students, and therefore Chi Kim Tong became our master. And in meeting those guys and beginning to learn Nan Shaolin Wu which is Southern Shaolin Five Ancestors Fist, this was the real access to the kind of the real deal, as people say. And so um, I would see Kim Han would come over here every couple of months, and I tried to get over to him in between that in London. And he would basically brain damage you with information. And then it was up to you to go off and digest it and practice it. He would always, he was, he would always kind of give out about those things. And he said, you know, if I'm not giving out, that's when you want to be worried. You know, if I'm not giving out to you. Um, so he would always say, don't come to me to train, come to me to learn, go home and train. So all of that kind of stuff I found very informative to me in my process, you know, uh, and then. I would also then go out to Malaysia to, to train with Master Chi. and He used to come over to Ireland every two years. So that was kind of the process by which I acquired uh, the art that I'm still practicing and teaching. Um, I feel like I should take a breath and, and see, am I heading the track that you want me to be on for your podcast? Should I keep going? Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: So absolutely. no, absolutely. This is, um, look, um, as you're talking, I'm just trying to, absorb it all it's um and one of the things i have i've noted about you over the time that you you think about issues really deeply and um and you know by no means um and one of the things that we had in common is our catholic upbringing and uh, which we talked about at the deeper level as well so you know and you've got this um mystical um practice that you're absorbed into and you know just um, just tell us a little bit about that link as well because that's um that's quite key as well because you know you're a deep guy and uh these are the issues that i had to deal with you know when i was learning martial arts you know me as an islander and the way i viewed the world and taking on disciplines and uh that you know it's not sometimes for me it's not so much um i have a very as an islander time is not really an issue it's not a it's not a number on a clock. It's actually events. Tides dictate the day. Um, and so um, often one of the things I've had to adjust to in working in a Western culture was learning to um, compress what, what I can achieve into into a set of hours. <laughs> and um, it's called deadlines and things like that. And, um, and and some of those issues that I think that requires depth and uh, it's really about finding the, I guess, the, finding a way really to take the things that I value in terms of timing and um, patience and all those qualities, and then apply it to this very time-driven society, and it's more so in the film industry, particularly with time and money are the two big drivers of anything. And um, but anyway, just I don't want to. Take away from the path that you're going down, but you know I think, um, but Peter, you know what? Over the years, you know, I, you are unbelievably Irish. You epitomise um, everything good about that country to me. <laughs> I've never been there, but I feel like I have through you. <laughs> and you do wushu. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> so explain. You know those those two those two worlds. Explain, yeah.
1: That's a really interesting point actually and I I remember asking Master Chi you know he was declared a national living treasure of China Um, and I was with him in China in 2000 and you know only really realized then you know the the big deal I suppose that he was I mean we arrived back in his village uh, his village of two million people um, and to a parade and VIP sashes and you know bands and all kinds of stuff going on, with none of which we knew about or expected in advance. And I said, "How is it that an Irish kid from you know the outer edge of Europe ends up training with with the national living treasure of China?" And he just smiled and says, "Your martial ancestors are strong. When you need a teacher, they'll be there. But it means that when other people need a teacher, you have to be there." So that was quite a nice uh, little exchange. Um, but it's something I've thought about quite a lot, and my own mother said quite often that she reckons I was born in the wrong place. Um, but an actual fact I going deeper into these things, and you know it's interesting you brought up uh, an observation of me being a deep person. you know' it's, it's obviously something you one wouldn't say of oneself, but it's interesting to have it commented on, I suppose. But for me, and, and this goes with time as well, by the way, I've been very interested in the notion of time since I was very young. Um, I announced with great pride when I was about five that I had proved that time couldn't be linear um, and anyway that's another story but you know for me time is either you know it's the great consumer um, it consumes everything you know or it's the great companion depending on where you want to look at it in the sense that on your journey time is always there and I would prefer to see it as the companion than the consumer you know um, and I've also experienced in a very, very real way, the way time itself and our experience of it can change. Um, And I feel the more present we are, and the more calmly, relaxedly present to where we are in the given moment, uh, the happier we are in that sense, in that given moment, the more the moment becomes an eternity. And our sense of time, like my memories of being in Nepal, for example, are now over 20 years old. Um, But I have rarely felt so present to myself and to a place at the same time. And so the memories are still very vivid and feel much, much closer to me chronologically, let's say, than an awful lot of things I've done since then. Um, And so that's something I seek and pursue as well through my own practices is that sense of being present, I guess, to the moment and really perceiving and loving and enjoying that moment, you know, Um, because it's the tiniest building block, but it becomes everything. Um, Anyway... um, I actually forget what you asked me now. i uh, back to the, the, the
0: Irish Chinese connection. Yeah, so, that Irish Chinese connection. I mean, I guess, you know, like if we put it, how, how does all this uh, deeps, um, you know, losing yourself, not losing yourself, um, uh, absorbing yourself into the teachings of, of your master <laughs> and um, how, how did that manifest itself in terms of um, everyday life in terms of what did, what did your day look like? You know, it, you know the, the path that you and I, the crossroad that you and I met was Lord of the Rings down under in New Zealand. And um, so you're doing all this training and um, you're a teacher and you're traveling. Um, yeah. How did that kind of manifest itself day to day in terms of your life and your routine and, um, and ultimately led you to working on a, a show like Lord of the Rings. And uh, for me, that was when, when you just look at something that's so it's not even deep at this point of the conversation, we made a movie. <laughs> and uh, how did a guy like that, who's having these deep experiences end up making a movie and to be working in a department that's perceived by many as a really shallow department, which is called stunts and uh, you know a lot of people try and find depth in it and there is when you look into the business that we're in but just how did you get there and especially on a show that was so commercially um, sensitive at the time with a lot of expectations and i think there were people um, who were giving up their soul to be working on that project and um, just you know carry on and bring bring yourself over to new zealand <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, so again, a, a good question. Um, and I think, having worked for years as a school teacher, uh, the the vocational aspect of that is very clear and obvious. You know, the giving side of it. The you know, you're there for them. It's as simple as that. Um, if you're a decent teacher, it's my belief anyway. And I definitely, you know, you've hit on something there that I definitely struggled for the first couple of years with that sense within stunts that it felt ultimately. Uh, a very selfish activity um, i was in it for me i was looking for the next job uh, i was enjoying the adventure and um, and initially i kind of struggled a bit to find well you know where's the value in this really above and beyond you know uh just doing the job and taking the paycheck um, and then i realized that it doesn't matter where you are in the world or what you're doing um, if there are other people there, then there's an opportunity to, the one choice we never have is to have no effect. Um, you will always have an effect regardless of, you know, whether you want to or not. And I think the more conscious you are of that the more you can del- be more deliberate, you can be about that. And so I consciously began to try and be mindful of my interactions with people and decided very consciously to be courteous and respectful of everybody to the best of my ability, regardless of who they were uh, and certainly not just behaving in an appropriate way up the food chain, but that would you know, kind of sicken me really uh, as a way of being. And so wherever you are, you have society and society is cooperative and interactive. Um, everybody has broken bits uh, and most people spend a lot of their time trying to hide, hide those broken bits. Um, but you know, it's also nice every now and then to come across someone that you can trust enough to share them with and actually um, form a, a kind of a relationship and a friendship, and so for me that's that's how stunts integrated into the kind of the life that I suppose was important to me in the first place. you know um, And we started off there a minute ago talking about the apparent disparity between a Ch- an Irish fellow learning this Chinese art so so in, in you know so so thoroughly, I suppose in terms of investing myself in it. and in an actual fact, you know the the Celtic worldview and the Chinese worldview are very similar in a lot of ways. Um, if you take the concept of yin yang, um, a lot of people say yin and yang, there's no such thing as yin and yang because the two cannot exist um, separate from each other. They are a single item. They are a dynamic. They are a movement of energy from one to the other constantly. And you know, they're the machine of the universe essentially. Um, and in Irish culture, everybody would be familiar with the Celtic cross. So you've got your basic cross with that kind of circle at the top. Um, and predating Christianity you had a very similar symbol, um, which was a circle with a kind of a cross through without the extended piece at the bottom. And what that represented was the vertical and the horizontal represented the apparent opposites of light and dark, male and female, hard and soft, yin and yang, and the circle represented the Celtic sense of the continuous flow of time that binds and joins all of these things together. So I found it interesting, that deeper I looked into these, these things, um the more similar they felt and more similar they became and i think that's true of most things if you if we go if we stay on the surface like if we stay on the surface of our hand and we look at the five fingers they seem very separate from each other but if you follow them you know deeply to the heart you end up at the same place Um, and i think there's a lot to be said of spiritual practices and physical practices in the same sort of way you know you dabble around on the surface you'll just see the differences and i think humans god love us are always trying to I don't know, find the separation and, the you know, that tribal approach to life, you know, Mm. Um, and we gather around the t-shirt and the flag and the concept and the idea, whatever, and believing that that separateness or that sense of identity makes us in some way special. And a lot of ways it does. And I appreciate what you said earlier about me being Irish, but I think far more important than that is the journey to discovering the connectedness of people. And everybody wants to feel accepted, comfortable, safe, happy, have a laugh you know, enjoy some food, have a beer, have a roof over your head. And, you know, that's that's kind of feeling alive, I think. Everything else beyond that is either gravy or bullshit, really. Um, And so for me, the simplicity at the heart of things is something that drives me. I suppose it's about stripping away and looking for what's at the heart of stuff. And so really the journey that I went on, I took a career break from teaching uh, because I wanted to go to the Himalayas. I'd always wanted to go for some reason. I don't know why, to be honest. (laughs) I just knew that I needed to sit on a Himalaya Um, and so I took a one-year career break from teaching to begin that journey knowing that I was going to become a scuba instructor in Malaysia or Thailand on the way which would help pay for my travels and do more martial arts training and you know at the start of it it was like a year to yourself it seems like so much time you know I get everything done you know it's all you discover is that there's so much more to discover you know um, and so the adventure began. And that's what I meant earlier about that quote from Goethe is, you know, you begin something with a vague notion of where it's going to go. Um, but it's the adventures that you don't anticipate that turn out to be the real, the core of it, the heart of it, you know, and that make it so valuable, I suppose, for me anyway, you know, mm-hmm. um, so I did go to Nepal. I went twice, actually, um, Did the Annapurna wow. circuit. So I walked from 900 meters to five and a half thousand meters through the fourth highest pass in the world and um, surrounded by eight of the highest peaks in the world. And, you know, I've got to say, I had some perfect moments in life. There was one morning where I set off at three o'clock in the morning. Um, I had no guides on a map I knew where I was going roughly. And you have to get up and down through the pass in one day or you're in trouble. So very deep snow setting off in the dark. And as the sun began to rise, you know, and you see what's around you, this, you know, the, the sky was as black as pitch. And, the, you know, the stars were there to be picked. It was so beautiful. And then the sun began to come up and you're surrounded by the eight of the highest peaks in the world and the wind is whipping the snow off the top of them and you're in the snow and you're, there's no one for, that you can see for miles around. And it just washed into me, like, as I said, like this perfect moment. And I remember struggling to breathe, actually, taking a couple of steps, stopping and breathing. But I dropped my rucksack and took out my tin whistle and just fell back in the snow and lay there in the snow in the Himalayas playing my tin whistle. <laughs> and, and honestly, that was a per- one of my perfect moments, you know, and a, and a great memory. Um, but Anyway, so I decided I wasn't nearly ready to go home and uh, uh, headed to New Zealand towards the end of that first year away. Um, and because I was a school teacher, I managed to get a work permit. Um, and then it wasn't that I wanted to go back into de- teaching. I wanted to explore other ideas for residency then. And again, that came through reasonably quickly. So I was now free to kind of do what I wanted in New Zealand rather than just teach uh, in a school. And to be honest, the school system was really beginning to piss me off, basically. It was all about crossing T's and dotting I's and less about the education of the child, you know? Um, and I was beginning a bit frustrated with that, I think. Um, but anyway, through it was through martial arts. Um, there's a guy in New Zealand, Master Chan. He's a lovely guy and a very good master of his, uh, of his practice. And he became a very good friend, and um, his brother, Kin, became a good friend as well. Him, Kin and I were the same age, and Kin lived in Wellington, uh, and I moved up to Wellington around 2000, I think. Um, but anyway, through training with uh, Kin, and I used to train together on a Saturday morning, and uh, some of his students were there this day, and we all went for lunch, and we were introducing ourselves afterwards, and how do you do, you know, what do you do? And one of the guys there, a guy that you know, and I know, and a good friend of mine, and I believe yours, um, was involved in the film industry. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. How did you get involved in that? Um, And essentially, to cut a very long story short, he said, we've got, there's probably some work coming up on this film we're doing. Uh, It was pickups for Lord of the Rings. I didn't even know what pickups meant. Um, And so that, that conversation was the beginning of the process that had me turn up uh in the studio uh and begin my kind of entry into that world you know um and you know I, I did a good bit of motion capture again something i'd never heard of for that for those pickups as well as some stuff on set and i tell you you know one of the reasons i said yes by the way was i just thought of a good story for my travels you know um yeah why not you know having no concept of where it was gonna go where it would lead me and who i'd meet and all of that sort of stuff but the first thing that I realized when I arrived on set, and I think this is worth saying to anybody getting into it, is that I knew nothing. Um, and I looked around at all of these people who seemed to know everything from all the various departments. Um, and immediately I, I had that notion in my head that you know everybody I'm looking at is a jigsaw puzzle piece and you know a 10, 000, of a 10,000 piece jigsaw. And every jigsaw puzzle piece has the perfect shape. It must be that shape or it won't work in the, in the picture. And then each person lays down their piece and eventually that becomes the picture, which is why I think everybody on set is as important as everybody else. Mm. Because you imagine building a 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle and there's one piece missing, <laughs> regardless of what piece it is, it's just kind of frustrate, you know? Um, and so, yeah, for me in the beginning, it was eyes open, ears open, mouth shut um and you know learn what i could from the people who are willing to kind of share uh, and realize that this was another uh, aspect of life that i had no experience of and and was very intrigued by and one of the things i loved about the physicality of the job was you know you might have gathered by now that i quite like to be to intensely do whatever i'm doing or or not be doing anything at all Um, and so one of the things i liked about doing stunts is that it required physical, mental, emotional, dare I say, spiritual presence. Um, If you're about, you know, if you're getting set on fire, doing a high fall, um, you know yourself, it's never just the once, it's the second take and the third take and the fourth take and the fifth take, you know, Um, and just being absolutely present to that and learning a new level of mastery of various parts of yourself as you face into doing that. Because there's always, there's always the first lie, um, which is, Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done a high fall before? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And the lie has to be backed by self-belief because otherwise you'll, you'll risk injury or stuff it up or whatever. Um, But there has to be a first time for all of these things, you know, but again, that the, 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 you know, yourself as well, that the skill sets and the level of skills involved in all of the different departments. I remember finding a belt buckle just lying on the ground on the set of the pickups for the third rings. And just picking it, you know, it was on the ground, tossed away, lost. And it was this beautiful piece with great engra- uh, the, the tree of Gondor sort of engraved into the leather around it. I remember thinking, you know, how beautiful that was and how much time somebody had spent possibly with an eyeglass working over this thing um, with great pride, possibly, you know, in, in producing this thing that, that was now lying on the ground. Again, another jigsaw puzzle piece, you know. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think it gave me access to a way of, living intensely and releasing even a kind of an aggression in me that I would always be very careful about sort of, you know, keeping under lock and key largely without risking harm to anybody else, you know? And so that energy you bring to, let's say a fight, and I think it's very cathartic in a lot of ways and very healthy, and to be able to perform with that level of energy. Um, but the key word there is performance about performance, you know, um, like it just has a sideline with regards to fights in films. I, I always tell people, you know, regardless of the out the known outcome of the choreography, you go in and you fight as if you think you're going to win. <laughs> you know, it should always be a huge surprise to you that you get killed, even though, you know, the outcome of the choreography, because there's nothing worse, I think, or more distracting from a fight scene than stunties setting themselves up for the killed, You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, it, it breaks the story and it takes away from it. So that's a bit of a sideline. But anyway. Yeah,
0: that's I'll take a, another breather. <laughs> that's, so, uh, that's so interesting. You touched on something there that, you know, and I think my journey was very similar to Lord of the Rings, particularly, in principal photography, I, it was an eye opener from the point of view. And I'm just building on what you're saying there was that um, it was the first time where I felt I could play to my strengths. And part of that was my size. And, um, you know, I, I could be strong. I could act strong because so many of them were the action sequences I was playing to, especially when it comes to fights, I was, um, you're either doubling or you're uh, fighting, like a a show like Xena, you're you're, Sometimes it's harder, you spend more energy fighting with a child than you do fighting, play, than play fighting with an adult, you know, because you have to like restrain yourself so many times. And one of the things that Lord of the Rings did, you're able to arm yourself with these big pieces of armor and then you get to hold a machete and you actually were able to go full bore into some of these battles and, you, and you're protected. And it was such, and like you said before, and I think that was one of the things that was really amazing that we had this group of people who'd go out and fight no holds barred and then stop. And then we'll all give each other hugs and um, have a beer afterwards. And it was such a, was an, it was a neat, um, well, a really significant part of my stunt career was um, to play your size and even to the point that you can exaggerate your size um, because the world of Tolkien was, demanded it. (laughs) Mm. And uh, and on that, the world of Tolkien, because you just, were you aware of the whole Lord of the Rings world prior to coming on set or was that, um, because when I, because the reason I ask is that when we did The Hobbit many years later, you were actually my counselor when it came to the mm-hmm. Tolkien world. Um, yes, I had the script and I was working in, in a coordinating role uh, with my peers. And then, but you actually knew a lot more about the Tolkien world and, and, than most of us in the team. You know. And um, where, did, where did that begin? Was that ignited at, at Lord of the Rings or did you already have uh, an interest in Tolkien?
1: Yeah, I I think I had an interest in, I think I said earlier that I was always, I grew up with a huge fascination and and love of the mythologies of the world, Um, particularly, obviously, Irish mythology and the Irish kind of heroic tradition, you know, Um, but also Greek mythology and and Roman mythology, which kind of cross over and Chinese mythology, then like the water margin and the story of monkey and all of this kind of stuff, you know, loved it all. and. Tolkien, for me, very much fell into that sort of uh, basket, I guess. Um, and I think Tolkien has said himself that what he was trying to do was recapture the lost sort of British mythologies. Um, you know, Beowulf existed as a Scandinavian mythology and the town Bohunya existed as an Irish myth- collection of mythologies. Um, and the British had kind of lost theirs. I mean, even the story of, of uh, you know King Arthur and the knights had become uh, kind of lost and changed and, and sort of modernized. or you know, marketed and all that sort of stuff. So that's why he went into the depth and the detail that he did with the creation of this world. Uh, And you go back to something like the Cimmerillion. And so that takes place over epochs, you know, uh, huge tracts of time and looks at the, from, you know, creation mythologies and the gods and all of this kind of stuff. So, you know, he went into it in such detail that it became very real about, and I think with all mythologies, there's, they tap into something within us um, that we, if we don't actually really believe they're there, we kind of wish they were, you know, on some level um, and I, for me, they are real, you know, they're, they're there within us in, in, as a creative force, you know, um uh, you know, you we were talking about, well, you talked briefly about spirituality earlier and sort of Catholic upbringing and things. Um I, I think even as a kid, I, I, if I'd only felt there was, there was this, you know, I'd have felt very claustrophobic. I've always had a sense that there's more to it, you know, Um and in, in in the concept of Taoism, the Tao uh, is is you know the Tao the the Tao that can be articulated is no longer the Tao, and I love that. So you you can't articulate it, you can't explain it, you can't you know you can't define it, or li- because that limits it, uh, and the Tao can't be limited. But you can experience it, and so that notion that there are things there that we can't define, but we can experience makes perfect sense to me Um, and I think the mythologies kind of tap into that sort of feeling Um, and so yeah I had read up (coughs) excuse me Uh, that's not COVID by the way I had read up um, quite a lot of the sort of the the appendices to do with his writings but also kind of dictionary style books of his stuff so you look up Ent or you look up Mordor you look up whatever and it gives the full description and explanation of what that was and I just loved having a kind of a that sort of solid sense of the world that I was reading about so and this went back to um, I remember a school teacher when I was very young reading The Hobbit to the class and loving it and then I think when I was about 11 I read it again myself and Light like, loved it again and I think after reading The Hobbit I tried reading Lord of the Rings but it just felt too much like a big school book you know with millions of names and dates and I kind of gave up on it when I was 12 and I didn't come back to it till uh, the Christmas of 2000 Um, when I was flying home to Ireland for Christmas. And it also, it turned out to be the Christmas where my father unexpectedly passed away. Um, So not an easy time. But anyway, in the airport in Wellington to begin that journey back home, I was looking for a a fat book to read on the ridiculously long flights back to Ireland. And, you know, obviously I heard that Lord of the Rings was being filmed in New Zealand at the time. and so I decided oh, I'll buy Lord of the Rings and give it another go. So uh, I bought a nice hardback copy you know, that was illustrated by Alan Lee and began reading it for the first time. And I've got to say it took me probably about two months to get through it. Um, and oddly, three months after my father died, Master Chi Master, uh, Master passed away as well. So to my father and a father figure, both going within three months of each other. Um, and I remember i think i was unemployed at the time in new zealand i I sold a bunch of crap that i owned to get ticket to buy tickets to fly to new zealand to go to uh, master chief's funeral and then went back out to the islands to work teaching scuba diving to earn the money to get a ticket back to new zealand again um but then two months after that that's when i had my first uh, day on set on lord of the rings so i had bought the book at christmas read it loved it got big into it again and five months later i was on set so um a Bizarre kind of five month period in terms of loss and gain, you know. Um, and you know, I would see it all intimately connected as well. Um, so yeah, uh, again, I forget what led us to me saying that, but or what your question was, but um, yeah, so I'll, I'll take another break. It's,
0: it's, it's absolutely, um, it's just fascinating. And I, I look at some one of the things that I've, well, you know, particularly with you, and you know, I post Lord of the Rings, you know, we've been on Water Horse, Narnia's, all these other films that has, um, you know, but it started there. Um, As you were were talking, I was thinking about when I became president of the Stunt Guild of New Zealand and I had to put my adult hat on when I first wrote my my letter to the membership. And one of the things that I wrote, which resonated with a lot of people who contacted me, is that you, you, as some people you need to find meaning in what you do and um and i think it's really critical that you find meaning in what it is you do and 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 because that's going to help manifest um with what that meaning will manifest in the way you approach your job and um and so you know one of the things that i wasn't a struggle or perhaps that i observed during lord of the rings during the lord of the rings times was just how um how significant the book was for so many people. It was that I've never experienced anything like that, where you had um people on set who who were intimately connected to the movie of uh in mass like that. Often on any other project you'd have the writers and the key people who have the vested interest in telling that story. But there was something about Lord of the Rings particularly that um, um, that, that, that i guess it was that on steroids i guess you could say <laughs> um and, and going back to you you know, with um when you came on lord of the rings of course we had a, a mutual friend kirk that he was my co-coordinating partner on there on the pickups um we had a seasoned uh well a new bunch of stunties really who were still on their first job so you weren't the only person who started on that job. As a matter of fact, probably three quarters of that crew, that was their first job. Some were just uh, there for an extra year or two. Uh, perhaps. Um, so when did you decide, um, you touched on it a little bit before that you have this experience uh, on Lord of the Rings, when did you decide that this was perhaps um, uh, something that's worth pursuing? I mean, further than just this experience that you had on holiday, I mean, wh- what is it that triggered you to, um, um, because that, that fascinates me because it, uh, you, you're this guy who thinks things that rather deeply that somewhere in there, there must have been a, something that happened that that triggered and it can't be just be the dollar because you know, there's plenty of ways to make the dollar. <laughs> you yeah, can, no, you're, you're,
1: sorry. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, the dollar facilitates, um, but that's all. Um, and I've never been the dollar as it were, has never been my sole motivator. It absolutely hasn't. Um, and in fact, uh, that leads me, you know, into the future or my current present as to why I've kind of taken a step away from that, but that's, that's for, that's for a bit later. Um, no, you're right. It certainly wasn't about just about the dollar. Um, I think I was 35 when I started stunts. Uh, And that's old (laughs) and to be starting stunts. Um, And the advantage of, if probably possibly the only advantage was, I already had a good sense of who I was. Um, And so while I wanted to prove my worth within that environment, I didn't need to prove my worth as a person to myself, you know, and I think that's very important, but also, I had never, I, just by my nature, I had never defined myself according to my job. Um, I think what was always important to me was to be enjoying doing what you're doing while you're doing it. So, when I was a schoolteacher in Ireland, I loved it, it was great. Um, I taught in Austria for a year, that was great. Um, I loved teaching martial arts, um, I taught scuba diving on and off for years in Southeast Asia, loved it. Um, And here I was now being offered an opportunity to kind of break into into a different industry entirely and was loving it. Um, so that's the key thing, you know, I've, I've never defined myself according to my job. And I think, I think it's a very easy thing to do. Um, and I think it can create difficulties for people certainly further down the track as they try to maybe, you know, say when they reach retirement age, for example, and then are faced with the question, well, without that job, who am I? Um, and, you know, the statistical rate for people dying within two years of retiring is unnecessarily high, I believe. Um, and it has a lot to do with that. It's that ex- you extract the job and a, a huge part of the person gets extracted with it. Um, if you haven't had a different type of a journey or a different sense of yourself within all of that. Um, so uh, that that's what I was bringing with me, I suppose, as a person into the industry. Um, and then after that, like I said, eyes open, ears open, mouth shut. But I kind of... I felt, like I said, I referred earlier to the intensity of what's required of you. Um, I think you might have been the person I told that first lie to. By the way, of yeah, I've done that before when you were getting us to fall off the back of the mummacle or something. Um, but I absolutely, I, you know, had total confidence that I could do it, so I was happy to tell you that lie. You know, and um, you also said something to me which I've never forgotten. Uh, I may have repeated to you since. Um, you were walking away, and you stopped. and You turned back and said, "Remember, we're just making a movie." <laughs> Um, and it was a beautiful perspective to put it into because at the end of the day, you know, an episode of TV or a movie, no matter how big, is never worth somebody's life. <laughs> um, and so it, it becomes incumbent on us, especially in our department and stunts, to, ha- to be able to do what you say you can do <laughs> um, and to be there for the people around you. Um, I remember, I think it was Bomber, um, Rob said to me, you know, you can work on in any department on a film set and hate the guts of the guy you're working with but not stunts because you can quite literally be holding the other person's life in your hands and so there's a level of trust required and I loved that as well and I think that was very important to me so it was it was finding these values and then challenging my challenging myself physically I suppose Um, but at the same time not getting lost to it because the other thing about the film industry is well two things I think It's an incredibly dysfunctional environment in a lot of ways, you know, Um, in terms of what it requires from people and the way it might feed ego and all of those kinds of things. And then it can also be very seductive, you know, we want you, we need you. Oh, really? Oh, that's great, you know? Um, And and then it's always about the next job as well. Very few people are satisfied with the job they're currently doing. It's always about what's the next one, you know? And and these are the kind of the, the traps and the pitfalls that can suck us into it. I think, you know, it's very important to realize the jigsaw puzzle piece that you hold and be prepared to to use that piece to the best of your ability. But at the same time, uh, it shouldn't be all-consuming, I don't think, you know, because um, I, I think I was very mindful of always uh, keeping close friends, who had, you know, close to my friends who had nothing to do with the film industry because they were always a great perspective, you know, you know, the ones that were having kids or the ones that were struggling with their nine to fives or all of this kind of stuff, you know, this was kind of real world as well. Um, it also reminded me that that's not what I wanted to be doing, you know? Um, and so I think the film industry I- itself provided me with access to uh, both a way of making a living and then a way of living that I wouldn't have necessarily been able to find otherwise. Um, I think teaching scuba diving and, and bumming around in Southeast Asia was another aspect of that, but um, this gave a bit more stability and solidity to, to, to kind of be able to build on. Um, whereas the, the the, the scuba constructing years were very itinerant, which suited me. By the way, you know, I'm, I was always happiest with the backpack against the door, you know, and ready to go somewhere else at the drop of a hat. <clears throat> but that began to change, I think, with the film industry. So, you asked what was the trigger. I think the trigger was like the, the very beginning. I kind of thought, yeah, I definitely want to experience more of this and learn more about this. And so, I told you at the start of this that <laughs> I had taken this one-year career break. But in Ireland, you can take up to five years career break as a school teacher uh, and you just reapply at the end of each year. So 2002 would have been, specifically May, would have been the end of that five year period uh, because I had had gone year two, year three, year four, and it was now year five. And I was hoping and waiting to see what I get work on the second pickups uh, for for Two Towers. but now I was losing the safety net of the five-year career break. You know, once I'd lost that, that's it. That my job back home would be gone. And so um, I actually got in touch with the school back home and said, look, you know, can I get an extension on my career break? And they said, you've had five years. And I said, yo, I know I need an extension. And they gave me one week. So I had five years and one week. And by the end of that week, I still hadn't heard. So I was faced with that choice. Do I leave New Zealand go back to Ireland go back to teaching? or not Uh, and so I took a punt and the way I view it in my head is you know if you picture Tarzan swinging through the jungle from vine to vine you know the key thing is that moment where you let go of the previous one so that you can grab the next one Um, because if you don't let go of the first one you end up just swinging back the way you came and worse if you won't let go of it as you grab the next one you end up losing momentum just hanging in the middle so there is that oh shit moment where you let go of that first one and reach for the second one. And that was my oh shit moment, I suppose. So that was May 2002 and I I was offered to work in the pickup. So um, it worked out. Um, So yeah, so I did, I think I said to you before, I did part-time stunts and part-time teaching for till 2004, so for three years. And then since 2004, uh, I've just been working as a a stunt performer and uh, coordinator from time to time as well. And uh, yeah, that was that journey.
0: (laughs) That is such a, yeah, I look, I can sort of think of so many people who um, and know that, that picture of Tarzan and I, I've had so, this conversation with so many people about, and I've never heard it put that way to, you know, every step of any new venture is going to involve a level of faith and letting go of and uh, wow. Well, I'm really proud and knowing that, um, you know, we were there at the very start because your journey really, that kicked off a very, the next phase of your life, really, to some, you know, film work has become what it is. I know that you've, um, over the years, I, I know you've been on some pretty amazing locations. You've been on ships, you've been on everything. You've rolled a few cars, you've coordinated, you've, Taught, you've doubled. You've probably ran more kilometres than any stunty I know in a fat suit, and um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and also uh, one of the things that um, I, I talk about with uh, people and in, uh, in terms of putting a team together is that I made a phone call to you. Uh, we were doing a project called the Water Horse, and. Um, <laughs> And one of the things that I always kind of, you know, I really look for in a team, is that you wanna create a culture where people can bring out the best out of everybody, not just the stunt team, but out of the cast and things like that. And for me, that warranted a phone call to the other side of the world, and um, you know, who understood what, 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 I guess to some extent, you understood me and I, and I understood what you can bring to the table and uh, in that sense, and we, uh, we needed a level of maturity when we were working with this very young boy called Alex Atoll, who was 12 years old, I think, and um, and the story of the water horse demanded an approach that was going to be there's going to be unique to Alex, you know. And I always say, you know, that we don't have to. Um, when I work with kids, the people that you've got to um, gain the greatest trust of is the parents, <laughs> you know, you know, Absolutely. the kids. It, Kids, if you are, you know, who doesn't want to be a stuntman? You know, when you're a boy, <laughs> the mum and dad <laughs> does not want you to be one. It's, and that was really critical when we were putting together Water Horse that we needed to put a team that uh, Alex's um, parents and guardians would entrust. And part of that was making a phone call to you, and they would just. Um, I really had no idea. It was a really big step of faith. I have to be honest. Back then, it was like. You know, he's a dive instructor, he's all this time, he's a teacher, you know, tick, t- all the boxes are ticked, but where the hell is he? <laughs> and, uh, and I only had one number and I was on like, and just, okay. that was a funny day because I don't know, he had a class full of students and we were having this phone conversation about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, how, were you back in teaching? That was not long, out. it was a few years after Lord of the Rings, correct?
1: It was, uh, I'd actually forgotten about that job. That was, um, I had come back to Ireland for, uh, in, in pursuit of romance uh, with, with someone <laughs> that I had met in New Zealand. Um, and yeah, I'd forgotten about it. So I, I was actually, I had taken on, um, I think I was filling in for someone who was sick or something in a local school just to get a few quid while I was there. Um, I can't even remember what I was teaching. It wasn't any of my subjects. It could have been woodwork for all I know. I don't know.
0: Um, I think you had Japanese students.
1: Did I? <laughs> what makes you say that? Some foreigners in the room. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I suppose the Irish are foreign to you, aren't they? Um, but uh, anyway, I, it was a secondary school, I know that, um, uh, in a place called Loch Ray, I think. Um, yeah, and I was in that class, and the phone rang, and obviously. I would never normally answer a phone in the middle of a class but it came up as a new zealand number i think and i thought oh, oh well i'll quickly take this and so yeah i took it and we had that conversation <laughs> and i was yep i'm on the next flight down <laughs> Um so that was 2007 was it or 2006 or five
0: 2007
1: 2006. Six? yeah 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 um and so yeah uh, that brought me back down to new zealand and then back into the industry with you and that particular job. And then I've said this to you before that in some ways, it was uh, a a hugely rewarding job for all the reasons you've just been describing there actually. And to be part of it from the ground up was a lovely experience too. Uh, And to be able to contribute to to it in a way that was quite specific to my own sort of skill sets, I suppose, was lovely. Um, But I've never spent so much time in the bloody water. I'm surprised I still don't look like a prune um, from having been immersed in water for so long. definitely one of the hardest jobs I've ever worked on. I remember doing ridiculous hours when we were down in, um, uh, where in Queenstown. Um, and I remember <laughs> at, you know, stupid o'clock in the morning, standing in the lake in my dry suit, <laughs> shivering and not even kind of, you know, just not even caring anymore. And, and one of the grips, I think, a, M- a Maori guy came over and just slipped a swan dry over me. <laughs> and so <laughs> that kept me going till wrap. Um, so yeah, no, I, You know, I still watch that. I just watched it recently with my mom, actually, who's turning 97 in August. Um, And I still watch it very fondly because the memories are so vivid. Again, that's another example of very vivid memories that feel very close to me rather than, that might be the trauma though, Um, rather than, you know, they feel a lot closer than a lot of other jobs that I've done since. Um, Mm. So yeah, uh, thanks again for (laughs) Waterhorse.
0: Well, I think uh, one of the things about that particular project, I, I still stay in touch with our director, as you do, Jay Russell, who's, uh, you know, and and whenever the topic of Water Horse comes up, every single person who was on it that I know is, is a memorable job, a great job, yeah. best job ever, you know, that term gets used so much nowadays. But it really yeah. is one that I remember. And um, recently Alex <laughs> and I uh, met up on Facebook. He's now this man, you know, he's... He's in his twenties now and, yeah. um, and Bob, his, um, his grandpa, we still stay in touch. It's such, a um, there, there was so much, um, variety and in terms of just, and I think for those who are listening, you know, um, it's, it's one of those jobs where um, if you have an idea of what stunt work is, well, this one will change it. Um, <laughs> what, what water horse was, was essentially, um, like for my bad for me as a coordinator what needed to happen was that it, when you're budgeting the show mm-hmm. i think to do a show like that we required 25 people and um, but one of the things that was really evident in the show in, in terms of when i was doing prep was that um in my discussions with jay and barry osborne was the producer was that you know we needed to have alex pretty much engage with our department uh, daily. And, uh, we had another body double from Tyrone, who was a son of another stuntman that we needed to serve. Have these uh, two boys fit into our world because wherever they go, we were going to go with them. And so I did something rather drastic and, and, it, and we paid the price for it, but the payoff long term was worthwhile. And that was, I halved the stunt team and, uh, from 25 to 12 and, um, and Because uh, I felt strongly at that time. And uh, I had, I don't think, I've got two little children at that point, yeah. And I just felt that uh, these two boys needed a group of men particularly around them that would um, prioritise them, you know, that they'll be the role models that these two boys needed. And I think part of the success of that show was the fact that whenever those two boys are in the water or on a rig, they could make eye contact with one of those 12 gentlemen Morgan, yourself, Tim, Wynnum, uh, Justin, you know, Al Pop for the season done, John Osborne, all these, you know, everybody had a name that he re- they registered with. And um, and it was one of the successes of, and we were working in a real environment, I just said. It was winter in the South Island, big ask. Um, so, yeah, amazing, amazing, memorable job. And mm-hmm. we prepped for it in slightly unorthodox and that was we went down to the south coast of wellington and looked at the seals and walked along the rocks and um you know they were tim and the, took the boys out jet skiing in the harbor and camped out on one sunday afternoon and um it was just a very unorthodox approach to make a movie but the payoff in terms of um uh, and I think the probably the the biggest one for me was when we did the explosive the the scene at night when the explosion in the water and Tyrone. Um, uh, I know that you know the day the time was getting on and um, I knew that you you're always nervous when you ask somebody young and it's two in the morning. Can you go one more time? And Tyrone looked at me and he went thumbs up says sure <laughs> and it was the last take of the day it was perfect you know because there are many variables to a show like that obviously and uh, but to be able to have the freedom to ask a, a child <laughs> to just go one more time at two in the morning was absolutely awesome and and I, I think yeah. that's one team that's one team I'm really proud of when I think back over my career it's just the dynamics of the, the individuals that made that team
1: I have to agree with you actually. And for me, um, in terms of the stunt world uh, and how it's changed a little bit, I think, um, for me, that was a kind of a dream team in a sense in that it was very much all about the strength of the team. Um, everybody had their jigsaw puzzle piece. Everybody carried their load, but everybody looked out for everybody else. Nobody was trying to pre on it or look at me, look at me. There was none of that. It was. It was the epitome of the best of of teamwork, excuse me, in my view. Um, And, you know, I've I've, I've worked with some great teams as well since then. Um, But certainly, I think what I took from that and what I learned from that about team and how team must be in order for it to function properly within that department, I took with me through all the jobs I've done since. Um, And I remember working on Penny Dreadful and working on a very complicated fight sequence where we had... 25 stunties providing 147 kills fighting seven lead actors all in one one scene um, and I put together a beat sheet for that fight for the coordinator and he said to me later when you said you were going to do that I thought that's great no you won't um, because I thought it was too complicated but the whole thing was color-coded and it, it you know I knew where everybody was at any given shot And given that there was only 25 stunties providing these 147 kills, you needed to know what the camera could see at any given moment and how many lead actors so that the stunties could populate that. But at the same time then, um, allow people to shift around. It was a bit like a Rubik's cube so that any one move created a whole bunch of other moves and it worked. and it it allowed us to shoot the crap out of it in quite a short period of time and get loads and loads of really good stuff. Um, but in order for that to knit together, everybody, you know, if you've got someone just, you know, losing it and getting tense and, and shouting and all, it just falls apart, I think, um, and it's not a nice environment anyway, who wants that? But to have everyone getting a sense of, yeah, we all know what's going on, we know where we are, you know, and it's slick and it's quick and it's, you know. And then months later, um, we went back to pickups on that, and Vic Armstrong was actually um, co- uh, second unit director on it, and I was coordinating for him because the the actual coordinator on the show was off um, doing another unit. And so I got to coordinate with Vic Armstrong, second unit directing, for about 10 days. And there was a a scene where um, Wes Studi, uh, the Native American, very well-known actor, was playing a character called Kietne. And they were starting him from a kneeling position, and and Vic says to me, what's the next move from this? And I couldn't remember, because it was three months since we'd actually filmed it and but there was a kind of a logic you know yourself there's a logic to the way movements happen and all this sort of stuff and and so i said this is what he does next and just as i've given that answer the uh, continuity lady comes over with her ipad and says oh i have it here and i'm thinking oh christ and uh, sure enough it was exactly what i just said so um it, that kind of worked well and just keep the chinese face as it were uh, and move on but i just remember um, at the end of that block of coordinating with Vic, him putting his big heavy hand on my shoulder and saying, good job Pete, well done. And for me, that was huge. Um, But the whole point of that is that ties me back to that memory of how a team can be, needs to be and should be um, to provide the best possible product and the best possible environment for the people that are in it. Because ultimately, it's all about the people. um, Because it is a day of your life. Um, and that
0: needs to mean something, you know, I believe. Oh, well, you know, I think, um, you know, that was the job. I think you drove every possible American war vehicle and, um, you know, <laughs> tra- 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 traveled in every possible craft. Um, yeah, and how to function with little sleep in Red Bull. Peter, one of the, you know, I was going to talk to you about it later but you know it's, it's sort of come up sooner and um from the very beginning it was to me you could tell people who um uh, you can kind of see there's there's certain steps in the way that people um people behave or do certain things they're always going to get them into certain places faster or um with some efficiency and one of that I always thought that you were going to become a coordinator at some point. It was inevitable. I mean, you were that right from the very word go. And it was the collection of those life skills that you brought into to stance. You know, you're a teacher already and um, you know, and you and you came in with a level of maturity and life experience. That I was saying at the start, you know, a lot of your experiences that you brought into stunt had been tampered by real life experience. You know what it is to struggle. You know how to persevere. You don't go to the Himalayas you know without, without knowing what perseverance is and come back and um you know and travel itself you rub shoulders with people of all kinds and you've got to get on with them and see the best and look at the worst in people for what it is it's just a, a quality that you, you have to deal with not something you need to try and destroy or whatever it's just everybody comes so you're so you're in the you're in the stunt business and um you worked on Water horse and some of these shows so did you see that when it was some, at what point did you decide that coordinating was going to be the next step? Did that kind of evolve naturally? Was that something that you pushed as well? Given the circumstances that you have and going back to Ireland, you're on this international guy. Um, yeah. Did you push for it or did it kind of, did it invite you coordinating?
1: Yeah. Not only did I not push for it, it's never been my ambition. Um, right and that might sound like an odd thing to say under the circumstances and given our conversation, but, um, and yeah, it it is what everybody sort of anticipates you will do uh, as you move on. Um, but you know, yourself, it it is a very different job from being a stunt performer. Um, and for me, it isn't a necessarily the natural progression. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second. So the coordinating I did do, um, either was, I did quite a, a good bit of onset coordinating, which I really enjoy. I just seem to, I think it's nice to be able to stay calm when everything around you is going nuts and uh, and just find the solution um, to whatever's going on. I, I I coordinated for an American director on a kind of a horror film. I think it was called The Cherishing. Um, and he said two things to me at the end um, that, that, that I liked, you know, in terms of a feedback, it was good for me. You know, I liked hearing this as feedback. It was important to me, I think. And he said, um, and in this kind of gruff American accent, you know why I like working with you? And I said, no. And he goes, two things. He said, one, you only talk when you need to be heard. And so consequently, everybody listens to you. And two, I've seen you see stuff and fix it before anybody even notices there's a problem. And you don't say anything about it, you just do it. <laughs> and I liked that. Um, I think we've all worked with, um, in environments where people, I don't know, talk because they like the sound of their own voice. Or worse, feel that they need to, to continuously refresh their status and presence in the area, uh, and then speak when not necessarily, when it doesn't necessarily advance the program, as it were. Um, and so, for me, you know, the job of coordinator is to quietly facilitate everything happening um, from our point of view, from our department's point of view, and also keep it. And this is something I very much learned from you as well on Water Horse. Is, is that we're you know keep an eye on everybody's safety, not just uh, the safety of, of our of the people under our direct care you know um, but you know as a kind of a, a an ambition to go on and become a coordinator it's just never been my ambition um, it's more of a managerial role it's more logistical um, and I love the performance side of it um, doing something in front of camera. I also love the fact that it's largely anonymous by the way. And um, so we're in this unique position as stunt performers of doing our stuff in front of camera, being able to see it nice and clearly on the finished product on the cinema screen or the TV screen. Um, but nobody really knows who you are. Um, and that ties in with what I said to you the other day about the advantage of being nobody. You And, know? um, and that really, has, I've always really enjoyed that. Um, but I, in 2016, I was standing on the set of Vikings and I realized, and this ties into what I said earlier, that I was now only there for the paycheck. And I thought, no, nah, that's, that's not right. I felt I felt a bit, so I came back from New Zealand after The Hobbit at the end of 2013, thinking things were quite down work-wise. And then was just flat out between Vikings and Penny Dreadful and um, into the Badlands and went up for a little while on Game of Thrones just for, uh, to do some previous stuff. And so it was the great complaint, but I felt like I was a hamster on a wheel running like crazy and going nowhere. And I realized it was kind of time for the next adventure, you know? Um, and I was starting to get some coordination, coordinating gigs, um, without looking for them. And, and I realized very much, even though I knew it had never been my ambition and then having done it, I did enjoy it. I have to say, and I, I, Definitely enjoyed it, um, but knew that it wasn't uh, where I wanted to be going next with my next adventure as it were. Um, so in 2016, I remember I went to Costa Rica, um, cause why not? Uh, and it was beautiful. And I remember I was on a beach and there was some kind of little market stall selling these huge, effectively sheets uh, with some kind of print on them. And there was one that, that was essentially blue with a tree of life, up through the middle of it and it spread throughout it. And the sunshine was coming through it and it looked absolutely beautiful. And I consciously bought it um, as the first thing for my new place, wherever that was gonna be. <laughs> so it was kind of the first step, literally that the first step towards whatever was going to be my next adventure. And in fact, uh, that's it there. I don't know if you can see it. Right. It's, uh, it's kind of folded over that couch now. And so in 2000, I looked around and in beautiful places in Ireland and Donegal and Galway and Wicklow. And anyway, after another amazing kind of a story, I found this place here in West Cork. Um so I'm on the side of a mountain Mount Gabriel with the sea just behind me, um, which combines just the perfect geography for me, ocean and mountains, you know, um, and I'm surrounded by two and a half acres around me. Um, And the place itself is 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 just there's something about it that has a power and an energy to it um and so i i knew what i wanted to do i knew i wanted to get back to teaching the 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 woods with the five ancestors fist and and qigong but it was more than that i think you know i think when i moved back to ireland it was quite an angry place actually um in the sense that like the rest of the world we'd gone through this great economic crash but it felt kind of like the people responsible for that crash weren't being held accountable. But, you know, the average person on the street was paying for that through their increased taxes and all the rest of it. And there was a sense of frustration, a sense of death by a thousand cuts as each year something else seemed to be added to the burden. Um, And then you had, you know, sort of Trumpism on the left and Brexitism on the right. And it just felt to me like I was starting to be infected by this anger uh, unconsciously. And I realized that unconsciously, I was actually pouring my energy at stuff that I could do nothing about. And that tied in with this feeling of, okay, yeah, it's definitely time for the next thing. Um, and the next thing wasn't gonna be in the film industry as such, um, although you know, we always keep our ties you know, to something that you've been so intimately connected to for so long, I think. And so the next adventure was gonna be, first and foremost, to nourish me um, in my life uh, and then anybody who found it was welcome to it, was the idea. Um, so I've called this place in Irish, Charman and Huil Yog, which means Sanctuary of the Little Forest. Um, and Little Forest is a direct translation of Shaolin in Chinese. So again, back to the start of our story, it links the Chinese and the Irish together. And I built a, a training hall um, just behind the house up there. And I've started teaching again. And I um, started teaching one year ago, and I now have... 32 students uh, coming to seven classes a week for the, the, the Kung Fu and the Qigong. And I am loving it. Um, you know, the place itself is an element of the practice. The place itself has an impact on the people who arrive here and on me on a daily basis. Um, <clears throat> and I feel that I'm growing again within something that I've always loved because the, the, the five ancestors, it's the only it's the main continuity thread throughout my whole adult life. Um, everything else is something that I've kind of done and moved on to, but on from, but this has stayed with me the whole time. So there's a beautiful sort of completion of a circle. Um, it's not really a circle because you're not back to the same point. It's more of a, an upward spiral, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And it's another opportunity to, to start growing again. And I've been absolutely blessed <laughs> with the people who turned up to learn, you know, um, you know, the, the chief psychiatrist for West Cork, um, his wife is a doctor, um, there's there's physiotherapists, there's uh, practitioners of different kinds, there's other martial artists, um, tree surgeons, you know, you've got people from all walks of life with really interesting mindsets, um, and therefore good questions coming to something that, uh, that I believe the deeper you go, the more you find, you know. Um, and so that's where I am at the moment, and that's where that's that's where I am, so I guess that's why, yeah, I can see why this done coordinator route would have seemed like the natural progression from the outside um but like I said, it's always the inner thing that would drive me, i suppose, um never just about the dollar, never defining myself according to the job, but always looking to follow I suppose your heart and the feelings and the think the thoughts the ideas looking to grow them, deepen them, you know, and it's easy to get distracted by life. um, And it's easy to get distracted by work. It's easy to get distracted by a lot of things, to be quite honest. And distracted from what do I mean? I suppose at the end of the day, you know, we get born into the world. And then I remember when I was about 16 or 17, saying to a friend of mine, I have no intention of lying on my deathbed and saying, I wish I'd spent more time with assholes. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, I wish I'd spent more time anxious. I wish I'd spent more time worried. And so, you know, I guess I keep reviewing my own life in that context um, and looking to find stuff that I find meaningful and, and allowing me to kind of grow and um, become closer and closer to the stuff that I was aware of even as a kid, you know. Um, so that's the journey and that's that's what I find exciting, you know, and uh, blessed to be an, an absolutely beautiful, and listen, you've got to come visit some, I know I've said this to you before, but you would love it here from one islander to another. Um, I, I have found myself, you know, I, I know how much you love the outdoors and engaging with the elements and with nature, you know, Um it was you that said to me, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothes. <laughs> um, and I, I, I've been places around here. Where I thought, you know what, Augie would love this. <laughs> so invitation always standing.
0: Well, thank you so much. And, um, and look, I think if there's one thing that, um, that's been, you know, I know that there's things out there that people really struggle with, and one of the things about, and and I guess this is the reason why we're sitting here talking. And um, when you when you invest so much and put yourself, your body on the line, as some people would like to put it, in in an industry like stunt business, and at some point it is. At some point, I just have to face the fact that what I'm doing is essentially uh, putting bums on seats and selling popcorn. There's one level of that work. <laughs> and um and there's this other part where, as you really touched on it so well to right now is you know um i don't ever if there was ever such a thing as a calling to the film industry well, i never got it i think the industry was called to me <laughs> and uh and it's uh it's helped shape um the uh, it's helped explain myself in terms of um the, the, explain myself to the world and the, the the trickiest thing to do is that when you as a, as a hoD and i'm sure you're in this way you, you can relate to this was uh, um, articulating uh, what it is that drives you uh, in life and uh, to me it's and i've always said to people and, and that my credits are not going to be on my gravestone i really want to make that clear yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but it'll be run a few things that's going to be you know, I, i've only got to go to the cemetery recently and you've got to be you, you, the words like friend, father, husband, loved, all those things are, are engraved on many gravestones around. I've never seen them, And I think that's kind of the legacy I'd like to leave. And I also, and and, and in talking to you, and I know why you're on my 25 um, must talk to people, you know, in, in, in this early stage of this podcast. And And I think what this, And as we grow, I think I'd like to be able to, this podcast, Stunstruck, is to be able to grow with our listeners and with our people who are guests to be able to, you know, I'm I'm intrigued, you know, about the next um, few years of Peter Dillon. So right now, I noticed that the uh, that wonderful tree that you bought and that sunlight is sitting on the sofa. And it explains probably that you probably don't get as much sunlight at certain times of the year. So it makes a good. <laughs> and um, I just really wanna, I just wanna end this first session with you, Peter. And just uh, I just wanna look at, um, just wanna say really, you know that. Um, the the business of film has been has played a significant part in my life as as it has yours and you know, hence why we've spent uh, just over an hour talking and uh, I just uh, I hope that for those who are listening um, that you would be able to reach out um, uh, follow Peter on his um, and what he's doing if you can stalk a guy on Facebook and um, and what you hear here in the last hour a bit and place what you see on social media of Peter Dillon, um, if you can bridge those two worlds together, <laughs> uh, I think it's worth doing. Because um, I know there's so many young people who are going into this business, you're coming in more skilled, more informed, and, um, and perhaps really hard to, to navigate um, the next 20 years of your life you know with all the information that are in front of you because you know literally what is what is the right one to take and i think what i've really learned from peter is and you touched on it peter was just can you just repeat that quote that um by the german philosopher that you which actually i'm going to use that for the title of this uh of this podcast i think it's lovely it's um uh, uh, who was was his name um you, you, goethe. It, you, excuse me goethe goethe correct.
1: G O. Either omelette or G-O-E-T-H-E. Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah. And that line that you quoted from him before.
1: Whatever you do, or whatever you can dream you can do, begin it. Because beginning has power in it.